Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we have Green Rush founding host Lewis Goldberg climbing back into the host chair for a chat with George Allen, chairman of the board for Lowell Farms, a leaning vertically integrated cannabis company. Based in Salinas, California, Lowell Farms grows artisan craft cannabis and prides itself on using sustainable materials from seed to sale to produce an extensive portfolio of award-winning originals, including Lowell Herb Company, Lowell Smokes, Cypress Cannabis, Moon, and Kaizen Extracts, all of which are sold to licensed retailers statewide and through licensing agreements in other states like Illinois, Massachusetts, and Michigan. Lewis sat down with George to talk about his transition to Lowell following his previous role as president of Acreage Holdings, the challenges of building a competitive cannabis brand in an oversaturated market like California, his expectations for a future of regulations both at the state and federal level, and what has him most excited for the future evolution of the Lowell Farms brand. So don't sit back, lean forward, and enjoy our conversation with George Allen. It's been a while since I've been doing one-on-one interviews uh, on the Green Rush. I've taken a backseat, and um, for me to come back and talk to a friend is really not even kind of a gift. It's totally a gift. I'm here today with George Allen, who is the chairman of the board for Lowell Farms. George and I have known each other for years um, and have done some really amazing stuff in the cannabis space. George, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, Lewis, I'm grateful to be back. Thanks for having me. And uh, as, as, as you guys have sat in the middle of this amazing industry for a long amount of time, I've been an avid listener to the podcast and it's been great sort of watching the evolution over time. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting it in and getting into it with you. And so thanks for having me. Getting into it. Well, the good thing is we're on other sides of a zoom uh, screen here. Cause if you're going to get into it, I'm going to throw my hands up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, let's try to keep it metaphorical. Then. Yeah. Um, so you're the chairman of Lowell, which is an amazing company. Um, one of the best brands in cannabis. But before that, um, you know, you started out on the East Coast working with some multi-state, a multi-state operator that we all know, Acreage Holdings. How did you just generally get into the cannabis space? You know, you are not a, a historic, you know, gray market participant. Um, so what, what drew you into the green? Well, I would generally say, uh, as a bit of a confession, uh, you know, I've been a, I've been a consumer of cannabis for far too long that I prefer my my kids to be aware of. But uh, you know, I've I've been a lover of cannabis for a long time, and sort of a bit of a, 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 a sort of a closet user of cannabis for for a long, long time. And uh, even as being a college athlete, I was a, a user of cannabis. And for me, it was something that I always kept relatively, um, you know, relatively concealed because there's so much stigma around it. But I always felt like cannabis, um, you know, cannabis was a vehicle that made in almost every way possible made my life better. Uh, and and, and um, when the opportunity came around, when I started realizing you know, I was working for uh, actually a, a Seattle-based company a while back, and when when Washington was going through its uh, legalization efforts, and I remember just being a spectator to that and thinking, "What well, this is this is really interesting to see how this is going to work out." And I, I walked in my first dispensary. I can't remember if it was in either Washington or Colorado. I walked in the two right around the same time, and, and I was like, "This is," um, you know, I, I remember my first instinct was, "This is really." Uh, the start of something interesting, but boy, do we have to do some work here because I don't see soccer moms rolling into these places anytime soon. And, and, uh, and man, we've come a long way. I, I stumbled in professionally into the opportunity because I ran across 
uh, a mentor of mine named Kevin Murphy, who turned out to be just a fantastic visionary in the industry and someone that I really enjoyed working with. Kevin uh, was looking for investors at the time. I was in charge of a of a of a multi billion dollar family office in New York, and and he walked in, uh, you know, sort of looking for funding, and and I was taken by his passion for the business and and for the vision that he had. Um, and I thought, what an interesting opportunity. But at the same time, you know, from my perspective, it, you know, if you go through your due diligence checklist on a deal, it, it just felt like the industry was so young and the business itself was, you know, so, uh, you know, so sort of crude as if you will, in terms of, uh, all the things you would look for in a, in a professionally run company. I just, I told Kevin, I said, look, I don't think this is an investment that, that we're inclined to make. And, and about a week and a half later, Kevin called me up and said, Hey, you know, what do you think about coming on board, uh, and, and helping me build it, you know, cause I'd given him pretty detailed feedback of what I thought he would need to do to attract, you know, sophisticated financing. And, and, um, he said, Hey, would you, would you join me? And we had dinner together and, and, uh, broke bread. And, uh, and I, I said, you know, that's something that I'd love to take a shot at. So a couple of weeks later, it was my first day of the company and, I remember walking in and high uh, point, boy, right? that was, that was, that was high point capital, high street capital. Yeah. High street capital partners. And, and, uh, and, and there was a, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, relatively, I mean, they had made a lot of progress in getting minority positions in a, in a fair number of States, but it was a, it was a, it was a pretty big, uh, it was a pretty big, pretty long putt from there to where, you know, Kevin really wanted to take the business and, you know, in his way, he put an enormous amount of pressure on me to sort of uh, to 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 execute on uh, financing and to building teams and to consolidating the assets that that were underneath the company. And uh, and I was grateful. We recruited a lot of very talented people to to move along the way. I would say in general, like it was a fantastic experience. But you could tell. Here was this. Uh, that was 2017. That was 2017. And so I, you know, you could tell early on that from my perspective, I just could tell very early on that we had these, com these competing sort of priorities. One of which was trying to consolidate the business fund fundraise um, and, 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 and grow the business in terms of footprint. But the, the flip side of that was actually, you know, understanding the unit economics and learning how to operate uh, the business in, in its sort of infancy. Uh, and that was sort of something that eventually became, you know, I said, became, became a, a pain point with the business is those competing interests. And eventually I think caused the, the company to, to reshuffle its priorities a couple of years later, but it was a real, it was a, it was a, it was a phenomenally fun experience. And I learned a, I learned a tremendous amount. Yeah, High Street turned into Acreage, and Acreage raised, if not the most money as a private, you know, early multi-state operator, one of the two or three companies that raised like literally almost a quarter of a billion dollars um, over the course of a few years. Uh, some people, many people, when they think of, of Acreage, they think of probably two things. They think of John Boehner, and they think of the Super Bowl ad. Can you talk about your role with both of them? Well, we, we you know, look, we, in the beginning of 2018, life was really complicated. You know, you, you had, um, you know, you had, uh, you had a Department of Justice that was really anti-cannabis behind Jeff Sessions. And, and Trump was giving, this is back in the day that, that Trump actually had supported and uh, and gave uh, gave gave sort of founding to to Jeff Sessions, and Jeff Sessions had come out and canceled the Cole memo, and he did that at a time like we had like no cash on our balance sheet, and we had just written the prospectus to try and raise money for the company, and we all looked around and said, "This is insane." I mean, it, it, it like to try to raise money against that headwind. And, and to be honest with you, like I, I, we were at a loss. I mean, it, we, we were, you know, we pushed out the, the prospectus at the beginning of the year to a bunch of people. And I said, maybe, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes, but you know, we, we had, a, what we had to do was, um, you know, it was this crazy journey of, we, we not only had to raise capital, but we had to raise capital and consolidate a bunch of minority positions 
and convince disparate entities in different states to consolidate into one holding company. And of course, like all that was banked on the the premise that we could raise capital and substantiate the overall value uh, of the entity. And and it kind of like that one crazy Jeff Sessions uh, moment really um, sort of blew me away. And I went home one night and I was just, you know, it was, it was probably the lowest of the low trying to figure out what are we going to do? Because the, the, the prospects of success there just, just seem so, so ominous. And, um, and I never forget, I had this, I had this young guy in my office who did a phenomenal job of reminding every single employee precisely the moment when he felt we were going to run out of cash. And that was not, not that far in the future. And, um, and, you know, the look, the underlying business and the minority positions we had in it were still, you know, with 280, it weren't generating, in, in, you know, so much dividendable income that, that we could fund our operating expenses. So it was a tough battle. So I went home one night and I was really focused on it. And I just, I guess was, I had just sessions on my mind. I went up to my roof deck and I, I, I lit a joint. And then this idea that just popped into my head started, went from total insanity to something that. I felt like had a, a fairly decent shot. It turns out I had met uh, John Boehner within weeks of his decision to, to retire from uh, as Speaker of the House. I had met him while sailing in the, in the Caribbean, oddly enough. And he was a lovely person. And, and I had uh, developed a decent rapport with the guy. And so, and, and he, one thing he had mentioned to me was, was his ambition to, to, uh, to become uh, to take maybe one or two spots in the corporate world on boards. And we had talked about some ideas that I had at the moment, but, but uh, it became clear to me that, you know, this was one of the chances we would have to substantiate the, the business and the mission. It was sort of like a counterpunch to De Jeff Sessions. Like, you can go get whoever you want on the democratic side of the ticket, but, you know, with the Republicans in power yeah, it to me it felt like you had to come back with something like that, and so we went and recruited. You know, I I had a good friend who played golf uh, with Boehner, and we and I we asked him for uh, the introduction. Murph and I went down and had lunch with him, and and walked him through it. And it wasn't a yes, but it sure as hell wasn't a no out of the gate. And, and uh, so we worked it pretty hard, and we sent him a whole bunch of data around you know what causes that were really close to Boehner. I mean, Boehner's a an incredibly committed and passionate uh, politician. And we spent a lot of time sort of talking to him about what it meant to the veteran community and what it meant uh, to, to the opioid epidemic and what it meant, you know, for, for uh, uh, to undoing like just a countless amount of sort of injustices across the country. And, uh, and, and Banner, you know, and, and, and frankly, without ever asking, you know, what was in it for him, he, he, he turned the page and said, look, I'm in. And, oh, and that was, wait, wait, that was wait. you're going to get me to believe that he didn't say what was in it for him. I mean, I mean, eventually it was a concern of his, but he was, yeah. Boehner was, and, and, and he honestly went, he went for it. I think because he was looking for something if fun and exciting. Boehner's, Boehner's a Pokemon, you know, he's, he's a, He's not like a solve the guy's success in the House of Representatives, which basically has all the maturity of, of you know, middle school. His success there is because, you know, he took bold, ambitious moves. And and um, I mean, you remember him staring down Obama when the rest of the country thought he was crazy and nobody had ever heard of him. And and there he was staring. I mean, the, the guy has a history doing that. And yeah, so so I mean, of course, eventually he wanted to know what what um what economics were but he never once negotiated and he was 100 percent fully throated committed to it before before he ever knew what uh, what was in it for him and and he got a lot of my respect for that and he, by the way he was amazing i mean we, we had this amazing day and i don't want to spend a whole podcast on this but it really was we the week we with the week we announced his participation was one of the most exciting thrill rides I've ever taken on a corporate roller coaster because he uh, it, it and I say the the final punctuation of it was um, you know while he's at the airport at Newark on his way home after sort of a whirlwind media tour 
he calls me up. He said, look, I just got a call from Corey Gardner. And Corey Gardner had just gotten a call from Donald Trump. And Donald Trump had just said he was going to tell Jeff Sessions to back down. And and Trump and and at this moment, you know, he, Trump and Cory Gardner were at this were at this impasse around a whole bunch of uh, Senate nominations that Gardner was blocking, and uh, and and Trump mentioned the fact that he'd seen what Boehner had done and the fact that the Republicans hadn't vomited all over it. Uh, you know, I think it had given Trump the license to to sort of start to 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 uh, to to ignore Jeff Sessions on the topic, which. Of course, I think later on we discovered there was more, there was more rifts in the relationship with Jeff Sessions than at the time we knew. So, you know, that was that was amazing. And, and then, you know, from there, uh, a twenty million dollar financing that we had on the books turned into one hundred and twenty million dollar financing overnight. And uh, and and then, you know, nine months later, we went, went to, took the business public, and the, sort of the rest is history. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, well, the rest is, and that's, it's funny because the rest is history up to a point, right? And we're not going to spend a lot more time on acreage because I want to talk about other things as well, um, because what you're doing with Lowell is is really fascinating. And, and the Lowell story in and of itself is fascinating. But it's not often that we get to speak with somebody who was there, you know, like you were in the room when it happened for a lot of the early days of all of the MSOs. And Acreage was one of those MSOs that everybody thought from the outside looked like it was going to be you guys and Cureleaf, and then maybe uh, GTI or Cresco. And, you know, sadly, Acreage has not lived up to, to the potential that it had at the beginning. It had a ton of cash. It had a huge footprint. It had great licenses, really smart operators. And then what happened? Because, you know, if you look at Acreage now, it's not what it was. Well, I, th- I think, you know, I think there are a couple of things that went into it. I, I'd say the short, short version and some fair amount of that I'll take responsibility for. I mean, we were rushing too fast to to build a business that, that spanned across a big footprint and probably overestimated uh, or un- sorry, underestimated this sort of operational lift um, that all these sort of fledgling assets that would require for, for coming on board. And, 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 in in light of capital raising and fundraising and and ever expanding M and A mandates, I think that became a, a, you know that became now I think that had we had the access to capital following the canopy transaction or had the company had the access to capital following the canopy transaction, I think it would have worked out. I think it would have worked out fine. I mean the 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 license footprint was second to none. Um, but what happened was. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't really, I don't want to speak to us school, but what happened was this premise that, uh, that the canopy investment would unlock access to capital sort of kind of worked out in the opposite. I think, it, and, and some of this, I was a spe- most of this, actually, I was a spectator from the outside because I left on the day that they announced the canopy transaction. But the, the idea behind the canopy transaction was in, in Murph was a, you know, Murph is a capital markets guy at heart and 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 he knew low cost capital was going to is going to win the game. And so you know his his whole premise was like well canopy has much lower cost capital than anybody in the US does. So a transaction with canopy is going to give us access to capital that no one else does. And I think it was a I think it, it you know if you if you if you spent a lot of time going through it it might have been flawed at the time but it felt pretty logical. But what happened was it was completely the opposite. The transaction because of, you know, I think some of the ways it was structured, but also just in general, because uh, of the with the way the markets turned over on itself at the perfect moment in time, it just ended up being, a, it, it ended up being really challenging. And the company had to go shed assets, start shedding assets in, in, in order to try to retreat to a core uh, in, in order to maintain profitability. And, and so that was... Um, I think it was a disappointment, but if you look at the business now, I think it's got all of what it needs to to be successful. I'm not a part of it in any way whatsoever, but you know, I've spent a fair amount of time with the current management team, you know, anecdotally and 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 uh, you know, in the waiting rooms and conferences and uh, and, and 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 I'm you know, I'm pretty impressed with what they've done with it, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing good news from it. Yeah, I'm a fan of of Peter Capaldi's. Um, I think he's a, a sharp guy. Super um, sharp so and super patient, and and yeah. I would say just really he he's been I think he's exactly what the company needed. Um, 
so you, you said right around the time of the, the canopy deal, you left. You sat on the sidelines for a bit and you and I talked, you know, you had thought about starting a fund and you look at a few different opportunities. What you eventually settled on Indus Holdings in California. What was it about Indus that drew you in? Well, I wanted to be in California because I had this thirst for getting closer to the metal, you know, closer to the operations of the business and understanding more about where it was going to be. And to me, it felt like California was the end state that we were going to get to much quicker than, than other people expected. And, and, and to some extent, I think, um, to some extent, I've been a little bit wrong on that because I expected legalization to happen much faster. Uh, but, uh, but I always, I always knew that cannabis was this amazing product and watching it go from something that had an enormously negative stigma for, for most of society to something that was going to be mainstreamed and consumed by the masses. And frankly, I, I believe this has a, has a decent shot to making this world a heck of a better place. I, I wanted to be at the middle of that. And California really is ground zero for sort of the unapologetic recreational side of the business. And the, I also, you know, in general believe that the cultivation and manufacturing that goes on in California happens at a scale and at a price point that the rest of the country is going to struggle to compete with over the long term. And so from my perspective, if, if you felt that way, the assets in California with both their proximity to consumer taste and behavior, as well as the low cost, you know, paradigm, it felt like the right place to, to, to go get involved. And I, I'd always liked the Indus assets. I'd, I'd known Rob Weekly for, for quite a while. I think that, you know, like everybody, uh, you know, searching for growth went a little bit over their skis in terms of ambition for, for growth, but the, the retraction that occurred, you know, right around the start of COVID gave me and a unique opportunity to jump in into the asset, recapitalize the business and, and, and shore up not only its uh, its financial condition, but also, uh, you know, to to bring to bring back investor confidence and to and, and to reestablish it, the business as a leader. And I, I think from from you know, despite what are pretty challenging market conditions now, we we've taken that company from what was a middling position in the pack to unquestionably the top of the pile in in California. Well, I, and this is an interesting company in, in that, you know, it had a little bit of a consumer facing you know, side to it, but it wasn't really a brand. You know, it was much more of a, a, a farm. You know, it grew and grows well. Yeah, there are few real consumer brands in California that, you know, can stand up on their own. And one of them um, is, was Lowell, Lowell Farms. Talk about the marriage between Indus and Lowell, how it came about and what's been going on there. Well, I did, you know, I, I got to know the Beehouse folks who would, who would come into control uh, of that business. And, and the more I thought about it, the more it was just a home run. First of all, I'd always loved this brand. And the reason why, uh, the, re the reason why I always love this brand is they went way past. Well, I mean, if you just remember where people were originally in cannabis, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was concealment, uh, you know, things like dosist, right? Early, it was concealment or early adopters. Like the first brands were just very much about like, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the waffling grounds between recreation and, and medical cannabis, right? It was like, you know, just, just don't worry about it. No one's going to know you're enjoying cannabis. And here comes Lowell with this, like just middle finger at, at you know sort of the the stigma of cannabis and like uh no we're gonna make cannabis sexy you know this is this is this is cannabis that you you know you're gonna throw this thing on the table and your 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 parents your in-laws are gonna reach for it because they're they're naturally drawn to to the product and and to its packaging and that is that is so uh, easy to look at and say, oh, that's replicatable. But the reality is like a brand, a brand is like, um, it's like a hit song. You know, you, you could say that all the components of music theory and how to make a hit song and you put it together and it ends up being a total 
flop, you know, but like a brand is like a perfect combination of a moment in time and aesthetics uh, and, and consumer taste. And Lowell was just explosive. And it had, unfortunately, was way in front of where the consumer was going with cannabis, but operationally and sort of organizationally was really challenged with a well, business. Product. And that let's let's be let's be honest, right? It was a great package, but it was an inconsistent product. Like you they, could buy they blew it on product. And the reason they blew it on product yeah. is because they didn't have access to a proprietary source of feedstock that was reliable or consistent. And California was really set up and and the early, I mean if you if you know California, you know this is the case, but California was really set up in this idea that you could be a brand operator and you could you could grab supply from a whole multitude of operators. But that business model, which seemed very logical, actually kind of backfired on itself because it became impossible to be a brand company and get reliable feedstock. It wasn't Lowell's fault that what happened because feedstock prices skyrocketed past where the brand could support it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons that go into that that involve all things like the black market and 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 diversion that happens in California. And so they got screwed. They got totally screwed. And they had tried, they saw the the flaw in the in the system. They had tried to to uh stitch together a farm and um and I think some some obvious arrogance and missteps there made that impossible. And once they lost the farm uh because of because of some of the missteps they made. It, it was sort of like it was. It was very difficult to keep the brand alive. Gotta, from I my perspective, it was a marriage. What was that? They, they literally bet the farm. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. And so, so from my mistake, you know, from my perspective, it was a marriage made in heaven, right? Because I had a, I had a reliable source of of supply that was was great and getting better. Um, and and I I didn't have a I didn't have a brand that I was particularly in love with. And for the most part, like that's not a a flaw of Indus, the company formerly known as Indus. It's not a lot of companies have that. Like there are very few, in my opinion, real brands in in cannabis, and we could talk about what that really means. But I think there's a lot more labels than there are brands. And Lowell was one of those brands. I was like, that that's the brand that I want to build. And so then then we had this challenge. The most interesting thing about the whole deal was, well, how do I make that brand our company, right? How do I like buy a brand and uh, a brand that's got some questionable uh, sort of legacy with the consumer, some, some, frankly, some ground to recover with the consumer and fix it um, and to have the brand survive. And then it became instantly clear to me one night that the only way to do it was to rename our company after the brand. And the, the, what I tell people about that decision, which nobody in the company pushed back against, at least after I, you know, gave them my rationale, the reason to do it was, when you're going through that much sort of brain damage and restructuring, the only way that I knew how to make every single employee at our company equally invested in making the brand successful was to make sure that every person at the company walked around with that business card, you know, and that label. Um, and so, and I think it, I think it's worked out well. I mean, we doubled sales and the brands uh, since we bought it, we've expanded it so far into two new markets and, and we've got many more coming and we just announced Michigan. So I feel really great about where that brand is headed. And I feel like that brand has a lot more chapters to go. I mean, we're not going to stop until that brand is, is on the tail fin of, uh, of, of uh, a handful of NASCAR cars running around the track and, and everywhere else that brands, you know, brands like Coca-Cola, Red Bull and Marlboro have been. You know, you, talked right now, a couple of minutes ago about the challenge of the, the feedstock in California and that the merger with Indus solved that. You're now expanding into other, other states. How are you going to guarantee that the experience in Michigan for a consumer is the same as it is in Los Angeles? And if I'm walking into the ohm of medicine in Ann Arbor, how am I going to get the same Lowell experience as I do in, you know, MedMen in, in uh, Abikenny? Yeah, this is the this is why we haven't just announced sort of with reckless abandon a bunch of uh, a bunch of deals, you know, because you've got to be you've got to be thoughtful about who you pick as a partner and how committed they are to the to the long term proposition with the consumer and how much they care. 
Um, and frankly, you know, I'd, I'd known Abner for quite some time. I'd always deeply respected him as an operator. I'd got to know, you know, the members of his team. Uh, we sent out our cultivation team to evaluate their product. And, and, and it was a delicate balance because the last thing we want to do is we start saying, this is how you're going to grow and what you're going to grow. That, that never works in cannabis to crawl across state lines. And, you know, arrogance meets arrogance. It, it turns into disaster. But we basically came up with an operating paradigm that made sure that what was going into our product represented the very best of what they were growing and what they were growing met a standard that we were satisfied with. And that was something that took some time. Uh, and we've evaluated in every market we've moved into since that first market of Illinois. And I've been really happy with the product so far. I think it's just, it's, uh, it, and the feedback has been really, really, really fun. If, um, if, for example, we get full legalization and cross-border commerce is available, can your farms in California fulfill a national brand's needs? Well, since, since, you know, so, so since doing the low transaction and bringing on that board, so, so I knew that I had feedstock to supply low in probably into like a, a three X growth from where we were. And so I, I knew I had a farm that was capable of doing that around. So I felt like, okay, I've now got a farm it's growing great products. I could take the very best of it and put it into low and the, the, the balance of that product so I can work on improving it as low grows. And, um, and so we started to evaluate that model. And so obviously as the business started to grow, we spent a fair amount of time looking for, okay, where are we going next? We're going to, you know, to, to your point, where are we going to get ready for how we're going to get more feedstock uh, for where we're going? And, and then, and then like this aha moment, hit us where we started watching how the market was performing in California. And I was really fascinated by the fact that we saw just a huge onslaught of outdoor growers and the product they were posting in some of these outdoor grows was just absolutely stunningly gorgeous cannabis. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous marijuana. No surprise. People have been growing outdoors in, in California for, for a long, long time. You know, I, I say this all the time, like cannabis is literally a product that has been in the closet uh, for, for decades. And the only place it's been grown outdoors is really other than Mexico and, and other parts of the world, but, but in the U S is really in California. And so the, that, you know, a couple of years of, of iterations as well as some of the communities opening up for outdoor growth, we saw this huge surge in outdoor growth. And when I looked at the quality that was coming in relative to ours and some of the, the best greenhouse cannabis out there, I just was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a cost paradigm that I have to align ourselves with. And so we kind of abandoned mo a notion to, to build out more greenhouse cultivation. And instead we built a business model that gives us access to several hundred thousand pounds of, uh, of outdoor grown cannabis that's simply represents the absolute best in what this massive army of growers in California is capable of doing. And, and it does it in a way that we don't have to take any single exposure to say any single farm. And so that, that's how I'm armed for this. You know, there's a, there's a number of competitors out there who are building massive infrastructure themselves. And my answer to that is like, I, I, I've got lower cost feedstock and, and an, an operating model that's much more capital efficient to go access that flower and so th that's how we're positioned for this, what we think of as this moment zero time when consumers are going to feel much more emboldened to, to, to move product across state lines, uh, either because it gets de deregulated federally or even gets deregulated federally and, and um, uh, you know, interstate commerce becomes, becomes legal. So I got two ideas, two competing questions in my head, and I want to get to both of them, right? So I'm going to lay them out and then we're going to order them. I know you care deeply about the historic cannabis farmer um, in California and the impact that the, the, the market has had. You talked about this on your earnings call about um, one of the farmers who, who killed themselves. And I wanna, I wanna get your thoughts on what can be done to help them. But before we get into that, you know, you, you talked about how California is, you know, this golden state when it comes to cannabis. Um, but if you look at 
where the real winners to date have been in growing national footprints in this space, it's been companies based in Illinois, in New York, in Massachusetts, you know, these, these much more difficult states. And you said, I'm going to California. You work for Acreage. You built the, 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 the portfolio at Acreage. You've seen what's happened with GTI and Cresco and Grassroots. How come California keeps failing or Illinois keeps winning? To say California is failing, I think is is um, is it like a, a very like linear way to think about it? Because it, if when we think about it from the consumer perspective, the consumer is absolutely winning in California, hands down. And there's a reason why, you know, the 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 TSA has a far you know far more export versus import problem with can cannabis out of out of California it's because the weed there is just out of this world great. Now I'm not saying that there isn't great weed elsewhere. There are great growers and especially you know in the controlled environments of of indoor cultivation there's there's great weed everywhere. It it's incredibly expensive and environmentally frightful. But it is, you know, there's there's good weed ever. But the consumer in California unquestionably is winning, and um, and the the inclusion for a diversified group of operators in California far exceeds any any sort of social justice program that you know that was tilted up in some of these markets where you know oddly enough six months later all the licenses are controlled by a handful of msos no it's far more democratic than california in terms of participation where california is whereas california has faltered is uh it has really struggled to adjust uh to to um to the black market right and so what you know and this kind of goes to what you can do what, what like how can you how can you help uh, this 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 cultivation, you know, this this challenge that's happening with farmers, and and for the most part, like what's happening in California, is supply exceeds demand, and supply exceeds demand right now because there was a surge, as I mentioned before, in non or outdoor cultivation, but but across the board, and 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 that that's because there was sort of unfettered access, and to some of this, to some extent, this is the natural war of attrition that happens in most businesses. And uh, and and happens in this particular case, it happens to be a little bit tragic because the people who are getting most burned by this war of attrition are are the folks who I think we owe a huge amount of debt to, because they're the first ones out of the gate. They're the first ones that basically risked everything and mortgaged their homes to to put you know to to put their product out there so that consumers could have a great Saturday night. Uh, and and I think. Um, I think what what you've got now is this market where the black market in California in 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 many ways and the way the market is structured because it's so overtaxed in California is is set up basically such that like the black market still thrives and and part of that is a lack of willingness to crack down on the black market and part of that is just structurally set up with the incentive structure of this just wedding cake this multi-layered wedding cake of just taxes on top of taxes on top of taxes. I mean, literally, you pay taxes on taxes in California, and this is just gross. It, I mean, it's just it is it is such a you know a, a pigs led to slaughter market out there compared to compared to a market that the regulators absolutely refuse to crack down on in terms of 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 uh, you know sort of the the black market distribution business out there, which which I would say like. It, it, you know, I don't want to see people going to jail. I don't want to see anybody going to jail for cannabis. But what I do want to see is that just make it fair. You know, like San Francisco just pulled called, uh, the cannabis tax because they're, they they see this the right way. They see this as being a free market problem and, and competition. And that is the only answer to this issue. So the honest to God answer is, is if you want to help, you know, like, it just, it just you got tell your tell your politician in California like to to fix a tax structure. It is messed up, and it is causing it's causing all sorts of brain damage uh, for for a bunch of folks uh, who who have really uh, committed their entire lives to creating 
um, to creating cannabis. And they, they were the first ones to see how it could make the world a better place. And, and we thank them by, by overtaxing them and just an incredibly punitive market structure. If I said send wellness, what would you say? So, I mean, I, I love those guys. I mean, they're great partners to us. They've been great curators of our brand and, uh, and, and, I don't, I, I, the last thing I could do is it, it have the capital patience or, or the, the time uh, to, to, to move into various markets with a partner that I would trust. And yet here I found uh, folks that care about our brand as much as we do. And they were willing to, to, you know, to shepherd us into this market. You know, what I'd say Abner is an aberration in, in the marketplace because he realizes that even though that, that, you know, there's 10 operators in, in Illinois or, or whatever, 30 operators at scale in Massachusetts. He knows that this market is going to eventually become competitive, right? It only takes two competitors who are well-funded to make a market competitive. And so eventually we, everybody knows where this is, where this is going, right? It, you, you can't, there's an oligopoly always breaks down when, when there are public shareholders involved, because one person is going to try to grab more share by cutting price. It's always the case. And so Abner sees this and he knows that where the puck is going is, is around brands and he's got his own brands, but he's not going to put all his eggs in those baskets, especially when it comes to, to getting shelf space in dispensaries. He's using our brand and willingly so he's using our brand to leverage shelf space access for his brands. And, and that's a trade that I went into, you know, eyes wide open because I think our brand does phenomenally well and it's a seed crystal of strength that's going to explode. And, we, and we've seen that so far. So I would say I have nothing but great things to say about Ascend Wellness. And I, and I applaud them for being really visionaries when it comes to brand leadership, even when it comes to these limited license marketplaces. So they're still there are still chuckleheads running around, you know, with this MSO operating model, which is I could, you know, I can put oregano in a bag and convince people that it's weed and they're going to buy it from me because, you know, I got one of six licenses and that's just awesome. And like, woo you know, like look at my EBITDA margins, like that, that won't, you know, that won't last. We know that but eventually consumers are going to, they're going to gravitate to quality and, and, and price. What does 2022 look like from a political perspective? Because, you know, we the Democrats are in office um, and there was this thought that even though Biden is an historic drug warrior, that we would have seen something happen this year. Nothing. You know, it's kind of similar to what happened in New Jersey when Phil Murphy was elected and, and everybody said, ah, first hundred days. And it took him like 450 days. Do you think that Dif we're going to see different different problem, though? Oh, I because know, Biden I was know. never Biden was never full-throated cannabis. I mean, if anything, he got seal clubbed that in, into that position, uh, you know, by a caucus. I, I don't think he was ever really full-throated into cannabis. If anything, Kamala was, but, but, you know, I think we've watched how ineffective a VP can, can be really it, 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 it governing policy and, and Biden wasn't. And so I think we should, nobody should be surprised that he had other legislative priorities that are way in, in front of cannabis. And you, but you have seen, I think what's most refreshing is that we have actually seen a broad based legislative uh, effort from all corners of the caucus, all corners of, um, you know, the, the parties to, to, to be supportive of cannabis. And I think, you know, obviously the other side of midterm, elections is really scary. I would just say if we don't get to any meaningful change before the midterms and the Republicans, as I think everybody's expecting, are going to take back uh, take back the House and have a decent chance to take back the Senate, especially if they take back the Senate. It is very difficult. But uh, I think we got a decent chance of getting something done before uh, the midterms. And I think we got a fighting chance at the SAFE Act. I, I, I know people are pretty down. It's become like de rigueur to, to be negative about policy movement now, but I'm seeing more motion than we have historically. And, and I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens 
sometime between February of next year and November. Because after February, the February is like when uh, Chuck Schumer finds out whether or not he's going to get primaried by the far left. If he does get primaried by the far left, I think what we're in store for is he's going to continue on this uh, no, no action until this, you know, really extremely broad based and very difficult to get consensus around thing that he's put together uh, in terms of a policy. But but if he does get if he doesn't get primary, I think he moves to the center and tries to get something done because everybody knows that this thing really falls on its face once the midterms occur. And and I think I think there's enough Republicans out there and the the disgust that happens on Fox News is down a level than it, than it always was. I mean, it, it, cannabis used to be such a punching bag issue for the Democrats uh, with, with, you know, moderates in, in the far right. And I think it's far less so. I mean, some of the, some of the craziest quacks in the Republican party are now pro cannabis. And that's just, that just totally sets the whole thing on, yeah, uh, on its side. Gates, right. I mean, yeah, I, mean I would say Matt like, Gates is probably, you know, he, he's, he's absolutely straight out of central casting. <laughs> he's definitely for it for that far right wing quack he is definitely out of out of central casting um last question what didn't i ask you that you want to talk about because this has been really fabulous well there's a lot i mean it's just like where are we going to take the brand and how do i how do i you know how how we got in forward but i would actually think the most interesting I thing i want you back like look this is not the last time we're doing this okay let me just be really clear so no i'm I'll yeah. do i'm excited i love this i love this podcast and if you haven't yet figured it out i have a problem with talking about both this business and this industry i mean and, and so i'm i'm always happy to do it I, lo I love it but i will say it's like i am i am blessed with an unbelievable amount of people who share the passion and the vision and are extremely committed and don't be confused that uh that because we're in a more competitive market it doesn't mean that I don't have a team behind our business that is 100% focused on winning. And they are absolutely keen on winning. And the lessons that they learn in, in the Coliseum that is California cannabis are preparing them for, for the, the ultimate you know, SmackDown fight that is gonna be how a brand wins in cannabis. And ultimately we all know this is going to come down to brand superiority and brand legend. And once they pass whatever it is in, in Washington, you're going to start seeing marketing dollars increase in, in across this industry. You're going to see brand awareness. Marketers are going to start to tell you how to feel about cannabis. You know, today it's much more this sort of, this sort of whisper network among friends and, and, you know, maybe someone shows up at the party with a joint. But it's not going to be very long after they make change in Washington that that marketers are going to take over. It's going to be in a, a lot of your narrative. And it's not going to be the fringe narrative, you know, that that is that is burner and cookies. It's going to be the mainstream narrative. And the brands that resonate with consumers, the brands that talk with consumers and make them feel sexy about cannabis, those brands win. I know you're a marketer. Um, Harris is a genius, um, and he comes out. Don't of, don't don't tell Harris that. All right, Harris is mediocre at best. Harris okay? is not allowed to listen to this podcast officially now. Yes, but you know he comes out of alcohol. Do you see the brands as you were describing that that paradigm? You know, is this a wine type of thing? Is this beer, or is this another kind of consumer packaged good? Um, and that's going to be its completely own, you know, paradigm um, where, you know, everybody's going to then look to cannabis as the way to market or is cannabis going to emulate what is done in, in, in alcohol? Well, I, I fucking love this topic and I can go on for hours on this one. And the God's well, honest truth is minutes left. And that's <laughs> it. So the God's honest truth is 
cannabis delivers on its promise far better than any product throughout history. If you think about it, no vehicle has ever, no automobile has ever transformed so much life, someone's life to the point where it justifies, you know, a doubling in their monthly expense. You know, if you, if you just think about pure utility, you know, we should all be driving around, uh, you know, little, little, you know, two door hatchbacks, but we're not right. Because marketers promise us that our lives improve, you know, non-linearly with the amount of money we spend on, on automobiles or well, cannabis actually does make people's lives better, regardless of whether it's healing them from, uh, you know, PTSD or making a Saturday night far more enjoyable, uh, you know, with the people that they love. Cannabis, cannabis actually lives up to its promise. It does. And it does so with almost very little collateral damage. I won't say none, but it, it, it lives up to its promise with very little social cost. That is going to blow the doors off of any product that has ever been marketed ever because it has an enormous amount of potential to improve lives just in general. And so I can't wait to see what that looks like from a, a marketing standpoint, but it's also challenging, right? Because you still get the same effect regardless of whether you're choosing my product or someone else's product, right? So that's what they kind of understood with Lowell. Lowell was a product that basically said, no, 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 we get the fact that cannabis is going to make you happy and they're going to bring joy to your night with, with, with you know limited cost or limited downside. But what we want to you to figure out is we want you to be proud about your decision and to make you feel as good about that decision before you try the product as you do after. And that was one of the really astounding things about the brand. And I can't wait to see what the marketing direction is. So in my opinion, it far exceeds alcohol, right? If you just think about like, what's the brand promise behind alcohol? It's, there isn't really much, you know, it, 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 you know, maybe it makes you a little bit more social or, but it, it, the reality is like cannabis is a far better product in terms of living up to uh, what, what it sort of, what it, what it purports to, to bring into your life. So I think it, it I don't know what that's going to look like, but I, I can tell you, it's going to be really, really exciting. George Allen, thank you so much for taking the time with me, man. Awesome. I'm grateful to be with you. Thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for shining a light on this industry. Really grateful for it. And, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for having an opportunity to talk to you. The millions of listeners that have come together and uh, and keep keep doing yeah. great work. Thanks.